The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Luke chapter 10 verses 17 through 24. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you, that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Denny. Good morning. I add my welcome to Joe's. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus sent out 72 followers on a short-term mission trip. And taking nothing but the clothes that they had on their backs, they went out dependent upon God for all their supplies and went out as lambs among the wolves. And they were commissioned by King Jesus to boldly proclaim his gospel message, telling how people can enter into his kingdom. And they warned of the eternal consequences for those who rejected this message of Christ. They said that blessing would come upon those who receive and embrace this message, but judgment would fall upon those who reject it. And Jesus himself said in verse 16, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the Father who sent me. And so the 72 went out into the towns and villages, and this morning we will see what happened as the 72 disciples returned to tell Jesus all that they experienced in their journeys. So with that, let's pray, and then we will dive into this text. Let's go to prayer together. Father, many of us have come here overwhelmed by the circumstances of life in a broken world, whether that is the pressures of school job responsibilities, strained relationships, failing bodies, loneliness, despair, the list goes on. Lord, would you speak into each one of these places this morning with your powerful word, 
the word that is the balm that our weary souls need to find healing and rest this day and the days ahead. So come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, tend to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many of you know that my allegiance lies with the University of Georgia, where I graduated, and my Bulldogs. Well, my boys and I, we were making our way towards the Mercedes-Benz Stadium to watch our Georgia Bulldogs play a few weeks ago, and we came upon a street preacher who was sharing the gospel over a loudspeaker to the sea of fans that were heading into the stadium. So as we were walking towards the stadium, he asked the crowd this question. As much as you will passionately cheer and yell for your favorite team in that stadium today, do you share that same love and passion and excitement for what the Lord Jesus has done for sinners? Not what I was hoping to hear when I was going into the game, but that question has stuck with me for the last several weeks. Very convicting question that he posed. As I've tried to evaluate my own life of where I find my greatest joy. And so I pose that to all of us this morning as we begin. What do you take the most joy and delight in? What excites your passions most? What do you focus the majority of your time and energy and resources upon? Our passage this morning really centers on two themes. The theme of rejoicing or joy and revelation. And what we'll learn from this text is as Jesus' disciples participating in his kingdom mission, our joy is to be rooted in three things. It's to be rooted in God's gracious salvation to us, his sovereign revelation, and his blessed revelation. Now as we begin, we need to define just in even in simple terms what we're talking about when we're talking about joy. And what we're talking about is a deep contentment of the soul that is only produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 17 that we just heard read, we're told that the 72 returned. They returned excitement and joy, but why? Because as they exclaimed to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They had no idea what to expect as they went out, only that they should face opposition. And so to have the power of Christ to be able to heal the sick and to watch the power of the gospel turn people from darkness to light, it blew them away. And like a team that came into the locker room after a big victory, they were just awed with excitement and wonder at what their eyes had beheld. They came back having huge ministry success. And in verse 18, Jesus joins in their rejoicing and their excitement. As he responds, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now there's differing opinions on what this verse exactly means, whether it's a prophetic vision that Jesus saw as his disciples went out and the power that he had entrusted to them or a metaphor speaking of the downfall of Satan. But in either way, This idea of Satan falling like lightning refers to how quickly Satan is in his power is defeated. We know going all the way back to the book of Genesis in Genesis 3.15 where God declared that there would be this offspring of the woman that would come and crush the serpent's head. 
And so ever since that proclamation, there's been a kingdom battle that has been waging. And at this point in Jesus' public ministry, he has set his face towards Jerusalem, heading there to deliver the crushing blow to Satan through his crucifixion and his resurrection from the cross and the grave. And so we can say that there has been a definite defeat of Satan, but the definitive act that was delivered on the cross will culminate in the fullness of reality at Jesus' return. This is the already but not yet reality. And the late apologist and pastor Greg Bonson put it this way, he said, Satan's exalted power has been broken. Like a flash of lightning, his energy has been spent. Satan's kingdom has been served a fatal blow by the incarnation, unsuccessful temptation, and exercising power of Christ, end quote. So therefore, the opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will remain, but the final crushing blow has already been delivered through Christ on the cross. And so even now, there's a sense in which we, as the church, are participating in Satan's defeat. We're a part of the cleanup effort. The victory has been declared. And so like the 72 who were sent out, we carry out Christ's mission By spreading the light of the gospel, and the Spirit brings conversion and transformation to the lost. And all of this gives evidence of the powerlessness of Satan over against the power of the living God. And furthermore, Jesus' reference to the authority that he's given his disciples to tread over serpents and scorpions, this gives them assurance as much as it gives us this morning as well that nothing can snatch us from his hand. We are held secure. Nothing ultimately will separate us from God. So no matter how you look at it, the incredible joy that the disciples experienced in witnessing Satan's submission to Christ and his power, it is far more profound from the perspective of Jesus. When we think of salvation, we need to have our vision expanded from simply thinking that someone is saved from hell so that they can now go to heaven. Now when a person is redeemed by the good news of the gospel, it is a radical, cosmic victory for the glory of God. The angels rejoice. Someone is being delivered from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. Going from being an enemy of God to being a beloved child of God. And going from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the living God. In verse 20, Jesus offers a rather shocking response to his disciples' joy as they come back to him. In essence, he tells the 72, he says, Your joy is good and it's right as far as it goes. Then knowing the human tendencies and limitations, Jesus brings clarity as to where our highest joy is to be found. He says this, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And what Jesus does in this moment is he redirects his followers' focus from their present circumstances to their eternal salvation. Jesus reveals that our union with Christ and our righteous standing before him is our greatest source of joy. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be extremely grateful to God for our gifts, for the favor He allows and the influence and the success that we have, but all of these things pale in comparison to the fact that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And even the gifts that He gives to us are to point us to the gift giver. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, of those who are enrolled in heaven. Jesus is seeking to train our hearts and our minds not to find our highest joy in our various present fleeting circumstances of this broken world. And he knows this is exactly what we often do, though. This is often the reason why many of us live our lives on the perpetual emotional roller coaster of ups and downs throughout our day. We attempt to derive our joy from all kinds of things, and many of which are good things. But whether we're rejoicing over being noticed or accepted by our peers, or we rejoice over being right over others, or we rejoice over having power and influence and wealth and comfort, all of these things are temporary, and they care not to bear the weight of all of our joy. They weren't meant to. Jesus is calling us to look toward eternity where true joy is found. And Peter understood this as he writes in 1 Peter 1. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now some of you may be thinking, okay, that sounds all good. But the reality is, Everywhere I look, I find reasons to be disheartened, to be sad, to feel pessimistic. But see, the scriptures actually give us a framework from which we can acknowledge heartache and suffering in this broken world, but yet still experience soul-contented joy. That's why Paul could write in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say Rejoice. Paul was no stranger to heartache. Imprisoned, beaten on multiple occasions, snake bitten, shipwrecked. Paul's testifying to the fact that this verse only makes sense in context outside of ourselves. God's word tells us that joy is possible despite what we may be going on in our own lives and the world around us. Or even how we feel about it. Our union with Christ is the only reliable source of refreshing joy that will sustain us in a broken and fallen world until the very end when we see our Savior face to face. So even if you don't feel joyful, don't despair. Rather, set your minds on lasting sources of joy. God's gracious salvation to you that you did not deserve. His presence with you in your daily life. And your future glory that is yet to come. And when we begin to delight and find ultimate joy in our salvation in Christ, then what happens is we are compelled to encourage others toward this experience of joy that can only be found in Jesus. And Jesus seems to be implying that his disciples' mission should be motivated by their future hope. 
See, his disciples were so excited to experience and exhibit this authority over Satan's power, but that's a fleeting enjoyment. What if they don't submit next time? What would develop an everlasting joy is the expectation of spending eternity with the Lord in a redeemed world where there is no sin, there is no Satan. And Paul alludes to this in Romans 8 where he says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And theologian and pastor Eugene Peterson, he explains how our joy uh, results from participating in Jesus' kingdom mission. Listen to what he says. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. It's not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we're walking in the way of faith and obedience. What you and I delight and rejoice in reveals what we deem most important in our lives. What is that for you this morning? If your faith is in Christ, your greatest delight should be that your name is written in heaven. And that you've been rescued from eternal separation and death. This is where our joy should be found even now while we await that day to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Because it's a a joy that can only grow and it can only mature as we experience more of his power and his presence with us. Why would we settle for any lesser motivations? Our joy is to be rooted in God's gracious salvation for us, but also in his sovereign revelation. We know that Jesus rejoices over many things, but here in the Gospels, this is the only time that we find specific reason and response to what Jesus rejoices over. Notice what he says in verse 21. We see that Jesus rejoices over the lost being saved and the manner in which that happens. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We come to understand to whom salvation is actually given. It's not the wise, it's not the the understanding, those who have knowledge and who are very intelligent, but they're wise in their own eyes, they're puffed up by this knowledge. In Jesus' day, this was the religious elite. Those who prided themselves on knowing the scriptures backwards and forwards, but yet they didn't know the one to whom the scriptures were about. They missed it. The wisdom of the world leads to an arrogance, a self-sufficiency that rejects a need for a Savior. And the children that Jesus is referring to are his disciples. Those who were unlearned, fishermen, farmers, common people. Those who see their need for a Savior. He's speaking of tax collectors, prostitutes, the unimportant that were looked down upon by the religious elite. And really, when Jesus says children, he's talking about infants. And children, we know by nature, don't have any pretense of being wise. They're curious, they want to learn, they're teachable. But they also make their needs known immediately and often loudly, as many of us have experienced. 
These are the kinds of people that God loves to reveal himself to. Offering them eternal life and every spiritual blessing that is his. And this reality should humble every one of us in here this morning. That God did not look upon us and say, I need you on my team. I like what you have to offer. Because none of us have anything in us that was worthy of him looking upon us and redeeming us. And so this means in order to come to Christ, we have to come in the manner of a child. And Luke later reveals this in Luke 18. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. This is the manner in which we are called to come. And Jesus praises his Father for revealing his salvation to the least, to the lowly, to the outcast, while concealing it from the wise. And in verse 22, Jesus reveals by whom this salvation is made possible. Notice he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Not only does Jesus rejoice in salvation that's given to the humble, but he also rejoices that he has the responsibility and the power to reveal those to the childlike. Jesus says no one can know the Father except to those whom the Son chooses to reveal. So one of the major aspects of Jesus coming to this earth and his mission as he came was to make the Father known to his people. For he says in John 17, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see this? Jesus is rejoicing over the Father's sovereignty over salvation. And that he, Jesus, is the revealer of who the Father is and what the Father is like. And in the same way that there is not a father on this planet that knows my children the way that I know them because they live under my roof, And I've been the one parenting them. So the same is true of our Father in heaven as the Son is the one who reveals who the Father is because He knows the Father intimately and wholly. We cannot know and understand God without listening to the Son and His revelation made to us. And so therefore, as it relates to our salvation, Jesus is the revealer, He's the redeemer, He's the savior, and He's the keeper of our salvation. Because of our sinful hearts, there's nothing we could do to have our eyes open to see this truth. And so all glory is due to Christ, our King. We have much to rejoice over. Because in God's sovereign plans, He's revealed Himself to sinners like you and I. So that we could be reconciled and experience communion and fellowship unhindered with the Father. And even though we don't fully grasp how God's sovereignty all works and how He has called some into salvation and faith, the fact that Jesus rejoices over this exceedingly, we should too. And as followers of Christ participating in his kingdom mission, our, root, our joy is to be rooted in God's gracious salvation, his sovereign revelation, but also his blessed revelation. Notice in verses 23 and 24, we see Jesus turn privately to speak to his disciples. And telling them of the beneficiaries that they are of his grace and of his blessing. He says to them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. They didn't see it. And to hear what you hear. But they didn't hear it. 
Parents, I'm sure you tried at times to explain to your children how fortunate and blessed they really are. They have a roof over their heads, clothes on their backs, food in their stomachs, heat in the winter, AC in the summer, nice, great things that you provide for them as you protect them and love them. But often they struggle to see how blessed they really are. And we tell them, when you get older, you'll realize how fortunate and blessed you are. That's in essence what Jesus is telling his disciples here and what he's telling each of us this morning. Because even as Christian adults, we can often miss how blessed and fortunate we really are. For those of us who've been united by Christ, to Christ by faith, due to our sin and rebellion, we were justly deserving God's displeasure and his judgment. There was nothing we could do to satisfy the requirement necessary for our sin. No action on our part could take away God's wrath. We deserve the death penalty. And Paul describes what we were like as unbelievers before our eyes were opened. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But Christ came. And he paid the penalty that you and I were to pay. Dying the death we deserve to die so that we could experience salvation. And Paul goes on to describe what that's like when our eyes are opened and we are changed by the reality of the gospel and Christ's work. He says in verse 6 of the same passage, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven, rescued, reconciled, adopted, and have eternal security that can never change. And so therefore, we should have constant joy because of our eternal destination. But we should have joy upon joy because of God's blessed revelation to us that has been given to us that all the saints that have gone long before us dream to experience. Imagine how these 72 disciples were impacted by the experience of witnessing demons come under their authority. This is what the Old Testament prophets dreamed of experiencing. They were blessed because they had their eyes opened. But not only that, they got to participate in the downfall of Satan and his power. The company in Chroma, which was started by a, a mathematician, has invented eyewear to deliver colorblind lens technology to those who were colorblind. So they can see colors in a way that they've never seen before. And some of you may have come across one of these videos on YouTube about when a, a family member or a friend gets a pair of these glasses and the person puts it on. And for the first time, they're able to see these bright, vivid colors the way God had created and intended them to be. And the majority of them are moved, they're overwhelmed and moved to tears. Because for the first time, everything that was once muted and dull is now vivid and bright, vibrant with clarity like never before. Now we might be tempted to wish that we could have been one of the 72 to experience this power that Christ entrusted over the demons and over the sick and to come back and, and celebrate with Jesus. But we are privileged to live in the best of times to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have record of eyewitnesses that has been preserved for us in the scriptures here. To show us not only that Jesus died on the cross for, cynical, for sinners, and that's a historical fact. 
but that he died in our place. Even the disciples who saw it firsthand, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. We see and we hear and we understand Jesus by faith after he's already accomplished salvation through his perfect life, his atoning death, and his miraculous resurrection. Our Father delights to save the most unlikely and undeserving people like you and me. And this has got to be the top of a long list of reasons we have to be joyful and rejoice in the Lord always. But we can also add to that list the fact that our salvation is already being accomplished by Christ. This doesn't mean that we can or shouldn't rejoice over God's faithfulness in many small ways that we see in our daily lives, but all of these things should pale in comparison to the reality that our eyes have been opened and we've been granted salvation through Jesus. Even if we were to be able to cast out a demon and perform miraculous healings, it would still pale in comparison to what Christ has done. Where are you finding your joy this morning? What are you allowing to rob you of deep abiding joy? If it's anything other than the fact that your risen Savior has ransomed you, then you're going to be disappointed. Take joy in the fact that you are a son and a daughter of a living king who's called you into his family so that he can now send you out to shine the light of the gospel to dark places. May we along with King David pray that he would restore to us the joy of your salvation. The only way we focus our hearts on Christ, the one who's the author and perfecter of our faith, only then will we be able to experience steadfast joy and hope because of the eternal glory that awaits us and that is coming one day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of our rebellion and sin, you made a promise. And you made good on that promise, coming by sending your Son to take on flesh, to die the death we deserve, to grant us salvation through your grace and through your mercy to undeserving sinners like ourselves. Father, may we rejoice and find deep and abiding joy even when we face the slight and momentary afflictions of this life in whatever forms they come because we know that they're holding an eternal weight of glory that is yet to be revealed that one day the reality of what we believe by faith will be seen by sight. So give us grace to walk each and every day holding on to that hope of our eternal destination that is coming. Father, we ask that you would do this by your grace and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.